Welcome to Morelia Python Radio with your hosts, Eric Burke and Owen McIntyre. everybody welcome to another episode of morelia python radio it was the wrong intro but at least it wasn't christmas music isn't that right rob (laughs) (laughs) i love the christmas music man you know that's the thing i'm happy half the time when things go off the rails because it just gives me the opportunity to go for it there you go man i dig it um so yeah owen is on suspension tonight and um (laughs) he uh he will be rejoining us back. But tonight we have uh, Rob Stone filling in for him. Um, and uh, we have a special episode uh, tonight, well, at least today. when we started NPR, one of the one of the things that we always wanted to do was sort of, um, you know, make sure that the people that were really responsible for sort of starting uh, the Moralia hobby were known and uh, any chance we get to talk with people that have been doing this for a long time, some of them are now even out of it and, you know, have come back on and talked to us um, just to tell us, you know, get us a snapshot of what it was like back then. And, and this one is, is, uh, is high up there on the list. Um, we're going to be talking to uh, Stan Shearis um, and we're going to be talking diamond pythons. I believe Rob, correct me if I'm wrong. He was the first one to breed diamonds in the U S right. Um, I think so, but I'm not, I'm not a thousand percent on that. We'll have to ask him. Um, but I'm, I'm with you, man. No, same thing for me. You know, I was, I sent you a picture of it today that, uh, first, uh, first reptiles magazine I ever got was the March, 1998 issue. And the cover cover story of that was Amazon, uh, Amazon basin Emerald that was written by Stan. Uh, right. so I read that about 15,000 times just because it was the first <laughs> one that I had, and it carried it everywhere, literally disintegrated into nothingness. Um, so right. the, the one, the copy that I have now is is new. You know, it's not that one. At least, you know, it was someone else's. It wasn't my original one. That one's long turned to dust. Um, right. And I'm totally with you, man. With with Stan, I I know he was on the list of guests I sent you. 18 months or two years ago, you know, it was kind of in the pipeline and I just hadn't made it happen. And, uh, you said you had seen, you know, seen him on Facebook and it was like, wow. Okay. Well, this is great because this is someone oh, literally I've wanted that. to talk to you on the show for years, you know, yeah. um, yeah. and has been on the, that list for years. So this is awesome. So, so just to give a little bit of history before Stan comes on, we'll get him on in, in a couple minutes, but, um, you know, uh, Stan wrote an article back, Gosh, when was that written, Rob? Do you remember? I don't even know. I had the cover uh, April in 2000. the outline. All right, so April it's 2000. Uh, it's 2000, and you know, back then, diamond pythons—they uh, had that thing called diamond python syndrome, and everybody was afraid to work with them. And you know, uh, they really were one of those uh, species that um, it's sort of like it's all—it's almost like Bolins today, but not with the same type of thing, like you know, not a lot of people were breeding them and, uh, you know, uh, but they're such a beautiful Python and, um, you know, here we are now at what, 18 years later, or, um, 
you know, and yeah, it's been 19. Uh, <laughs> well, in a, in a month, 19, 19 years later, what the heck, right? 19, yeah. yeah, yeah, crazy, man. But, um, but you know, here we are, and and you know, I think now we have a better understanding. But even still, I think I don't know. I, what do you think, Rob? Like, I think like diamond pythons are sort of that, you know, python within the Morelia, or let's even just say Morelia spelota complex that. People don't see, they're like, they're afraid of them or like, you know, they, they don't know how they work or, or like, you know, and there's such a misunderstood Python, you know, in my opinion. Um, I don't know. What do you totally. think about that? Well, yeah, I mean, totally. I, th- I think no doubt that the, the, the stigma, you know, associated with them wrongly, you know, um, has something to do with it. Obviously, we talk about this with all sorts of stuff, including Boland's price tag has something to do with it. You know, there are sure. probably folks that, you know, at a, uh, if their availability was greater, so the price was lower, maybe more folks would be on board. That's just sort of how, you know, how that can go. And um, But as you know, they're my favorite of the Spilota, although the, the ones we saw in the wild, those, those probably trump them. But certainly when I, you know, every uh, carpet <laughs> fest, when I come to your place and, and clean stuff, somehow it takes me like four or five times as long to go through all those diamonds as it does everything <laughs> else. I don't know why that yeah. is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're Googling Maybe I'm playing with them, them 20 you know? minutes, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, come on, Rob, clean that water balls. What are you doing, man? <laughs> right? What are you cool. doing, man? Yeah. So, uh, but um, yeah, I mean, that's sort of sort of the intro, and um, you know, some of the people that have been. Do- I mean, I really came in the carpets in what, maybe like 2005, 2006, and for people that have been around, this is this is uh, they they would have heard uh, Stan and his article on diamond pythons and keeping and breeding them. And uh, we're going to jump into it and break it down and, you know, uh, make some history tonight. Right. Anything else you want to hit on before we get Stan on or no, I'm too excited, man. Let's get him on. Let's do it. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Beautiful. Stan, welcome to Morelli Python radio. How you doing, man? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So let's start at the very beginning, like we do with everything. Uh, like uh, we're going to talk about what got you into reptiles and maybe what led you to diamond pythons. Well, um, I mean, what got me into was just fascination with uh, snakes primarily when I was five years old, I suppose. I, I don't know how old I was when I first became fascinated with, with snakes, but uh, I was one of those kids who was chasing and, and bringing home every snake I could find, and, and it, it just never stopped. I, and they're, they're fascinating animals. I mean, there's so, so much evolution in them and, and the beauty and all that, I'm, and they're just incredible. So I've been addicted to them my whole life. <laughs> well, we can uh, we can agree with that um, and, and understand no, where really. you're coming from. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> So what led you to work with with diamond pythons? What was it about diamond pythons? Well, they were sort of a forbidden fruit back then. I, I, I got my first diamonds in the early 80s, and okay. they were hard to come by, very hard to come uh-huh. by. I got mine out of Europe, um, and nobody was really working with them, and, and the word was you just can't breed them. It's, which which just uh, was a challenge that I wanted to take up. But, I mean, it's such a beautiful animal uh, that, you know, I, I wanted to have them. And, and as soon as I got them with, with any reptiles, I've always wanted to, to 
really learn as much about the husbandry and and maintenance of the animals possible, which takes you right into breeding. I mean, it's just natural evolution of, of somebody's involvement in the sport. Well, not sport, hobby, but <laughs> right. um, yeah, or whatever whatever we call it. Um, but I, I just I just thought they were beautiful, and I wanted to work with them, and and uh, uh, I just refused to believe that we couldn't find some way to breed them. So I just got busy learning as much as I could about them. Okay, cool. That's awesome. Did you have you been to Australia? Did you go to Australia at that time to kind of get a sense of that? No, I've never been to Australia, and and I intend to go there before I die. Believe me, um, I want to ship my motorcycle over and ride ride it around <laughs> Australia for a month or two and chase guanas and parentes and ring not ring python. No, not there. Um, blackheads and. and and diamonds and just uh, and I have uh, some people I I knew back then in the 80s I I've been out of touch but certainly like to look up some of the herpers that are over there and and uh, really really oh. make it a, a big deal it's it's fascinating island for sure yeah yeah it's great fun Eric and I just went in uh, November December and then already it was so awesome. You know, it was one of those things where I've been all sorts of places, but I'd never been there, never, you know, looking for reptiles mm-hmm. and whatever. And uh, we went, and it was so awesome that, what, Eric, within, was it two weeks, I was trying to make a plan for to go back this fall, <laughs> and I bought yeah. tickets within, like, three I mean, and a half good. weeks. I bought back. tickets. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. That yeah, was great, for well, sure. Well, they certainly have some, some incredible <laughs> reptiles down there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, the best as far as I'm concerned. But uh, what are what are I mean? You've worked with a multitude of species. Like, what are some of the other stuff that uh, species that you have worked with? Well, uh, my probably my biggest passion has always been uh, Amazon Basin Emerald Tree Boas. I've worked with them extensively for a lot of years. Although I really mm-hmm. I don't have any right now and I don't have any diamonds right now either I'm I'm getting older and sort of want to do more traveling and less spend less time at home caring for animals so I'm I'm really knocking these things down but but I've I've had a lot of a lot of different kinds of pythons I I bred African rock pythons back when nobody was doing it and uh, of course I bred Burmese and and one big passion I had way back and, and I'm talking back in the late 60s early 70s um, one of my big passions were the uh, Pakistan light phase python, which were likewise very difficult to get, and, and the, they're, they're almost impossible anymore because the uh, interbreeding, you know, people breeding them with Burmese have just right. watered them down, so you almost can't find them anymore. I, I've, I've seen some, but but uh, and I even got my hands on a couple about two years ago but there was some genetic defect from inbreeding or something, and they both both did not make it. So it's pretty sad. Yeah. I've heard of that in folks who who are working with that stuff, that some of them, I mean, it's it's really the problem, right, with a super tight gene pool. Um, yeah, I know yeah. yeah. And, you know, the, the government just, just doesn't allow us to bring them in, and, uh, and it just got, and then because they were on the endangered species list, you couldn't ship them totally. in between states. For commercial reasons, so when you when there, there's no commercial value, it's it's really tough for anything to continue in the in the animal world. 
Oh, it's oh totally. I mean, direction. right now, right now, that's that's kind of the focus of what I'm doing is uh, Puerto Rican boas and Jamaican boas and stuff that you yeah. literally can't sell. You know, just to try and move away from uh, <laughs> all the anxiety that Eric has to deal with selling a bunch of snakes. <laughs> yeah, well, when you can't sell them, nobody wants to buy them. Right, yeah. so totally. When yeah, nobody yeah. wants to buy them. Nobody wants to work with them. It's just a, you know, it's a vicious cycle. But it's 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 unfortunate because, uh, you know, some of these th- these things like the Pakistan uh, light phase python may become extinct. I mean, if they're, I don't know how endangered they are, but I know Pakistan is a war torn country, and and uh, people are poor, and you know, reptiles frequently suffer. They they hit the skin trade, or they get eaten, or whatever right. happens to them. So. So that's that's a tough thing. Uh, put them on the endangered species list, but we can't keep propagating them. That's counterproductive, to say the least. And <laughs> frustration sure. I've dealt with for a lot of years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. But but to cool. answer your question, I, I've I've kept all kinds of reptiles in my life. I mean, I've you know I've been keeping reptiles for 60 years, I guess, um, or more actually. And okay. I've kept every kind of colubrid you can imagine, and boas. I've worked with boas a lot, uh, not the morphs or anything like that, just the species like uh, the Peruvians and Surinams and all that. Really okay. fascinated with the boas. So, you know, the, the answer is a lot of stuff, and and some <laughs> lizards, uh, Gila monsters. I love to death, breed them. Uh, I I think I was the first guy in the states that bred. Uh, um, crocodile monitors, and I bred them like five times in a row. Wow. Fascinating really? reptile, fascinating animal. So, wow, I've I've just I've have a passion for a lot of stuff out there. Man, so so when you pick, uh, the, the, I'm just curious when you've worked with all these different um, species, and you know, uh, do you do you just focus on that species? At- time and then just try to dial that in and then move on to another one is that sort of how you have done it yeah you know it's it's funny once you you uh do dial something in and you're doing it on a regular basis uh sometimes i lose a little interest and and if if uh <laughs> yeah i mean it, but i mean there's other things to get my interest going so it's not a bad thing i mean you sure know, no totally so I, you know, I bred diamonds for a lot of years, and eventually I just uh, grew tired of it a little bit and sold them all out, and I moved on to, I don't remember what next, but, you know, it's it's uh, it's fun. I, the, rep, the reptile world is so fascinating. It's, um, you, I think you understand what I'm trying to say yeah. here. It just oh, totally. constantly oh, totally. pulls me into new things. Yeah, I'm I'm yeah, just always fascinated by like how people like move from project to project, you know? I mean, you see, you know, and especially nowadays you can see on Facebook how some you know people evolve into eventually what they keep. It seems like you sort of start out with like one of everything or a pair of everything and then you sort of get attracted to a certain species and you know, you you're sort of drawn to that and you know, a lot of times I have trouble with uh you know, just paying attention to one and sort of figuring it out and then moving on to another, you know, like reptile ADD. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, there's a treatment for it. I'm not sure what it is, but I'm sure there's a treatment for it. So, okay, I was gonna cool. Say, 
Stan, um, is it is it right that at one point you had uh, one of the albino anacondas that had come in? I know you've had not only rare, cool species, but some just sort of one-off, one-of-a-kind critters as well, um, maybe yes, in more common species. that's true. That's true. I, I had two. I had a male and a female. And uh, they, oh, wow. they both, uh, I lost them both. It was really tragic. I got them up to about eight feet. And um, uh, I was out of town for an extended period of time, and my keeper was not keeping the cage clean. And um, they both developed a, a, a fungus and their belly scales mm-hmm. and, and perished mm-hmm. from it. And, um, just because the water wasn't changed every day like it was supposed to be, and I'm not trying to rip on some sure. keeper, but uh, good help is very hard to find. <laughs> uh, so. Yeah, I, I lost them both. It was, and they were they were really beautiful. Um, yeah. But and I lost a lot of money on that too. Yeah, right. Ooh. I'm sure those weren't inexpensive. Um, no, because those were the first ones, right? Yeah. Yeah, they were. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. I was I was tickled. I the first one. I got the first one as a male, and I thought it was the only one. And then several months later, a female showed up. And, and of course, right away you go, okay, wait a minute, are there more? What's the, what's the trick out? here? Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. you get let you them get, out in a uh, trickle, sure. Yeah, that's you know, there's a lot of stuff like that goes on. So I sure. grudgingly bought the other one because I said, well, I'd like to breed them, but then of course I'm worried they were siblings, which I was sure. told they weren't. But once again, sure, let yeah. the buyer beware, you know. <laughs> right. Okay. So I guess let's you know I'm just curious about at a at a time when well let's ask this were were you first to breed diamonds in the states? Yes, yes. Yeah, okay. I bred them first in 1985. 1985. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, so, how did you? I mean, back then, the, correct me if I'm wrong. People were sort of saying you know, Python syndrome, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and people were sort of saying that they, they wouldn't live long and, and all these different uh, claims that people were making. And um, like, what, how, how did you begin to try to understand um, the species and how to keep them and how to breed them? Well, I've always been a naturalist. When, when I look at keeping an animal, I try to keep it in a habitat is that resembles what it lives in in the wild as much as possible. My diamond python cages were eight feet long, four feet tall, and three feet wide. They had multiple branches in them. Uh, I was living in Florida at the time, so I had Spanish moss in them, and I had palm fronds, and which I would change out and keep fresh all the time, and they were living on cypress mulch and dirt. And mm-hmm. And the window was kept open, so so they they were subjected to the Florida heat in the summer, and the, and sometimes pretty pretty cold in the winter. And on the coldest nights, I would close the window. But um, I I sure. tried to give them as much a natural habitat as I could, and I think it, it came out over years. People were saying that you know diamonds do really badly, and people were trying to to grow them quickly which, which mm-hmm. happens a lot. Someone gets a, a reptile they think it's worth a lot of money, uh, so they grow it fast so they can breed it. Well, it's not such a good thing for a lot of reptiles. Uh, Burmese pythons, you can just feed them sure. machine style, you know, just like their sausages. <laughs> right. And, and they just Monitor grow. lizards, yeah, a lot of 
yeah, yeah, a lot of different they, stuff. Sure. Yeah, monitors, exactly. Uh, but diamonds, no. Um, a lot of people had diamonds which had very weak mus- muscle and skeletal structure. And Dave Barker spoke to this, and I spoke with Dave about it many years ago. And uh, one thing I have always done with my reptiles is I take my time growing them up. Um, I, you know, sure, you could get a female diamond up to breeding size in three years, but I'd rather take five to get her there, have her be a little yeah. slim throughout her life. And, uh, you know, I, I think... I don't think I know in the wild they don't catch food once a week like we <laughs> offer. <laughs> Does not. And, and it's true. not food that's raised on lab diet and you know with all the all the nutritional correct. positives and negatives that entails. And, yeah. <laughs> a- absolutely correct. And to this day, whenever I catch a, a wild rat or a wild mouse out in my barn, and I have traps out for them all the time, I feed them to my snakes because I know that right. that rodent has been eating worms and insects and and getting keratin off all sorts of the shell of insects variety. you know getting a a really good mineral vitamin and mineral spectrum compared to lab food um so totally. i'm always trying to supplement a few few snakes i have right now with that kind of stuff and and i just i just think that's uh, was a problem with diamond pythons some pythons you can push even carpets are a different animal than a diamond um I've never heard of people having that syndrome develop in carpets, but mm-hmm. diamonds were were delicate in that regard. Plus, they, they I I truly believe they come from colder climate, and you know when they're sedentary a lot large part of the year. I don't know whether they brumate or hibernate or what they do, but mm-hmm. but I was told by an Australian who I called on the telephone back in 1985, and that cost a lot of money back then. <laughs> right. Um, it's like 50 but, or $2 a minute, I'm sure, at least, right? Yeah, it was like 2 bucks a minute. But, but I, was, I was just, you know, like, did they have Google and the Internet back then? I was going to the sure. library and looking up the climate and the areas where the diamonds were from and just, you know, painstaking research to figure this out. And right. so, you know, I got the names of some, some, some people who, who had worked with diamonds down in, in um, Australia, and I called them. And, and I still remember with his Australian accent, he goes, Mike, it snows here sometimes. And I, I said, what? <laughs> I said, okay. I, I really suppose these animals, can, you know, go hide themselves at certain times of the year. So, so that's when I, I started actually what I called hybrid. hybrid and, Mm-hmm. And, uh, that that has been debunked since I I developed that method, but that method worked for me for years. Um, well, and the thing I, this is the hot button thing. I've I've been defending it for years and years and years, um, and I think Florida plays into it as well. But being from Colorado, which I know you lived in Colorado for a period of time. I've always read that article as something that could work here in Colorado because of how you know, we're that much closer to the big hot thing. And even if it's 30 degrees outside, in my garage it'll be 55 or 60. It'll be 25 or 30 degrees higher than, than what it is outside just from the sun because we're 5,000 feet closer to the thing. You know? um, yes. <laughs> so I think you could actually do it in Colorado in, in a box, and you'd actually be all right because it would mimic what Eric's doing in his house. Yeah. yeah. Well, there are numerous ways we can try to replicate these these things. You know, modern herpetology has everyone keeping them in drawers, um, and which which I just can't stand. Uh, I 
I still, when I last had my boas, which I sold a couple of years ago, I, they were all in eight-foot-long wooden cages that I built uh, and given them lots and lots of room. I, I just think it's such a boring existence for a snake uh, to live in, in a, a freedom breather or, or any of that kind of cage. And nothing. And I'm not speaking poorly of them. I know sure. that's the way to breed a lot of snakes, especially ball pythons. But, but for some of these bigger active animals, uh, I, it just creeps me out to see them kept like that and i just never have kept them that way mm. so well eric yeah. doesn't keep them like that so that's the good news <laughs> all the diamonds he has he are not uh they're all basking light and you know active and moving around and they'll do it at 60 yeah. you know oh yeah, yeah. It, it's absolutely beautiful to see a diamond python perched on a limb hanging there like an emerald tree bow or, or a chondro python uh, you know, with coils wrapped up beautifully, uh, and you know that animal is extremely happy doing that. And, and if they live in, a, in their, you know, a tub, they don't they don't have that opportunity. I, I, I still have a few Gila monsters, and I have this huge breeding cage I put them in, which is six by no four by eight by about seven feet tall, and <laughs> I have limbs all over the place in there. And you should see these guys crawling up on the limbs at night. Totally. I think in the wild they, they do it to go raid bird nests, but uh, you know I'm, when I and when I see them doing that, I can, I think, oh my God, if I kept you in in a tub, that would be so boring for you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I have noticed. I, I know that, I'd I be mean, bored in a tub. <laughs> yeah, right? right. I have noticed, and maybe you can speak on it, but it seems like diamond pythons are very arboreal. Have you seen the same? Yeah, well, that's what I learned when I when I first got my diamonds and set them up in that cage I described a while ago, that eight foot long cage. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I, I put I put a, a a big tree branch. It was about three inches in diameter and it had some forks in it in the cage, just you know for, for ornamental purposes. Basically, I just thought it looked nice. And I have pictures of them coiled in it. They look like emerald tree boas sitting on them. And I, right away, I thought. Well, they must be relatively arboreal in the wild. They they wouldn't just, you know, you could do it with a ball python. They're not going to go up there and sit in the limb. So mm-hmm. I, I decided they must be pretty arboreal. And, you know, raising young diamonds can be a challenge. They they really would prefer lizards over mice. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> with, with that said, you know, they might... As youngsters, they might spend a lot of time up there uh, avoiding certain predators and catching lizards. So could be part of yeah. their, their uh, evolutionary development. It seems even that, if you had a ball uh, python that went up to, to check out the branch or whatever, it's not going to sit pretty like, a, as you said, a chondro or a diamond or, you know, an emerald. You know, it doesn't no. take that. It doesn't assume that, that perch. Even if it's up there crawling around, it's crawling around. It's not uh, that typical posture that we're used to yeah when when you see the, when you see the animal coil comfortably and sit there then you know that they are uh, conditioned through, through evolution to do that so right. you know those those are things that give me a great deal of satisfaction i want to see this animal if it's going to be in captivity i want to see it uh, feel like it's as wild as possible and as comfortable. And I don't know if you can say if a snake is happy, but uh, mm-hmm. that's what I would like to think, you know. Right, I, right. I, I <laughs> want him happy watching it like that, at least. Yeah, totally. for sure. So um, I'm curious, 
you know, maybe and maybe you can help paint a picture uh, for some of the, you know some of the people that are just getting into diamond pythons or just recently. Um, back then, like, did you work with a specific line? How did you, you know, was there only a couple different lines? I know that there's a lot of talk of, uh, especially nowadays, about you know certain lines being crossed with jungles and coastals back then. Do, do you have any experience oh. with that or thoughts or? Well, I avoided the hybridization with a p- passion. I'm, I'm adamant about not ever breeding a diamond to anything else. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and I, I know there are some, one folk, one guy in particular has some absolutely stunning hybrids out there. Um, at least he did. I haven't paid attention in a decade to that. But uh, mm-hmm. I, I just, the, unfortunately, you can breed a, a diamond in a carpet together and sometimes get a snake that looks a lot like a diamond but it isn't right and i was adamant i didn't i was against it because because then some somebody will sell that as a diamond and you're you're watering down your, your uh, genetics your lineage whatever you want to call it so right. I, I was really against it i mean it a pure diamond is absolutely a beautiful thing, and, and I passed up a lot of snakes in my time when I was gathering them that just didn't fit the description 100%, so I wouldn't touch them. Right. That, that made it difficult to find them, but but uh, eventually I found my best animals in Europe. Okay. Can you so highlight what some of those oh, traits? Yeah, it, yeah. Well, no, we're on totally 100% same page, man. Can you highlight uh, some of those traits that you would use to distinguish what you considered to be, what you felt comfortable with? Well, um, first of all, you start out with a black snake, and it has r- rosettes on it, which are the little flower designs. Sure. Um, uh, to me, a pure diamond um, has lots of rosettes on it and none of them are connected to each other and none of them are oblong shaped they're all rosette shaped which is relatively circular and then a lot of uh, because it's a black snake a lot of gold tipping on the scales which really mm-hmm. give it a be- gives it a beautiful appearance and the rosettes are gold now there are some out there that are white you know black snake with white rosettes and white Yeah those tipping. are really pretty yeah yeah, but I don't I don't know if they're pure diamonds. What those are? I, I, sure. Yeah, I don't know. I think they are, but I all my animals were the gold. I just stuck with them because I felt, uh, first of all, I thought they were pretty, but secondly, I, I felt 100% co- confident that there was no um, question about the coloration with the white ones, which might have come from a carpet hybridization. And who knows if it's F1, F2, F3. Uh, and, and I don't know. I, I truly believe that there are diamonds that are, you know, black and white. So, But I, I just prefer to work with the black and gold. Right. It's one of those things, right, where you can just say it's not that you're saying those are not uh, diamond pythons. It's just that you're certain that these, if it fits these characters, you're confident that it is a diamond python. Is the other stuff may, may maybe it is, maybe it's not, but this is you feel really good about it if it's like this. Yeah, yeah. I, I like I said, I I, I only would would uh, pick up snakes that fit that description, and it, and it was hard to find it enough. I eventually got a couple pairs of them, but that took forever. But uh, I passed up a lot of animals who's who's you know had the oblong blotches on them and, and colors that weren't 
right, uh, and, and even they weren't that black. And I'm not sure what they were or weren't, but but my idea of what a diamond python should right. be was what totally. I decided to stick with. So you know, and and if you have a snake that looks like that, no one can question that it's not pure diamond. Sure. No, I get. I totally get you. I mean, just for the, and I have I have a guess to the answer to this, but in terms of results that you saw then from the animals that you had, did you ever get anything that was like from so so from these snakes that you had that totally fit it? Did you ever see variation that came closer to maybe what you would think was questionable, which maybe would kind of say, okay, well maybe my my definition can expand a bit because I'm I, these uh, two things I super confident in gave me this thing which was a little more oblong or a tip differently or anything like that? Uh, primarily the answer is no, I didn't see anything but what I, what I was breeding. But I, I did see occasional uh, variations in the rosettas themselves. Uh, some would have more, some would have less. Some had almost none. But I never huh. never okay. produced oblong uh, right, that, that striping them, which, which, thing kind of feels carpet, right? Yeah, that, that any any movement just, towards striping, yeah. Yeah, I I just couldn't. I, I I I never I never got it in my breeding, so I felt confident that mine didn't have any carpet in them. But sure. my sources, you know, back many years ago, animals came out of Australia legally. Right. I, right. And, totally. And so, and and of course, in Europe, there was no customs back then. I mean. You could fly into right. Frankfurt in 1980 and just walk straight through. No one checked you. You could go all over Europe. And and so, you know, there's an open gate for a lot of good animals made it into Europe. And so it was a good place to source these things out. It was really tough to get them here. But, but I, I got them as, as with paperwork that they were supposedly captive bred from European breeders and brought them in under CITES permit. I, I did it legally. It was, I went over there literally to Europe to to see the animals and make the deal. Oh wow! So, awesome. How well, how did you at that time? How did you even facilitate? The, did you know one person who connected you to other people? How did you even do that without the internet and without all this stuff? It was slow, t- so tedious back then. Uh, <laughs> I mean, unbelievable tedious. Uh, just a lot of work. It, it's, I'm I'm literally envious of how people can get so much information so readily nowadays. It's just like you have no idea what we went through back then. Um, right. But no, it, it it would be uh, you know I had a lot of friends in zoos back then. I I was working with a lot of zoos and uh, guys like Joe Laszlo and Murphy and and um, Trooper oh. Walsh and Baylor. You know I knew all these guys. Because mm-hmm. none of us knew anything about breeding reptiles back then, so right, trying to you're pioneers working together. You have to work together it, to some extent. Yeah, right? it, to, it was absolutely. It was really great, you know, uh, Johnny Arnett at Knoxville. So I could call these guys up um, and get information from them, because, um, like I said, none of us knew how to breed anything back then. So, so they, thank heavens, they were open to some of us privateers. Um, you know, picking their brains and visiting them and sharing information. But I would I would get information uh, about people in other countries and just follow up on that. And there were reptile dealers uh, back then. You know, there was Joe Baraducci and and Louis sure. Porras at the shed and Tommy Crutchfield and and uh, Ron Cobble out at East Bay Vivarium. We all knew somebody, and it was just 
but we all talked to each other and we shared and we we were trying to figure it out. And so, you know, we we would just uh, say, oh, there's a guy like, like there was a guy named Ari Van Moorick in Holland who had a lot of connections with people all over Europe. And I forget who introduced me to him, but you know, once you talk to him and they know how serious you are about it, and you fly all the way over right. there just to see him. They start sharing, and, and you, you just get in touch with people. And back then, we had to write letters or make phone calls. And, you know, a letter might take weeks or a month or more to, <laughs> to get over there and get back. But it was uh, it was fun, for sure. But uh, I'm still <laughs> yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm it, so it sounds jealous. awesome. You know, it really does. And, I mean, I even – so I lived in Hungary in the early 90s, and it – I can p- totally envision and picture what you're what you're saying and how that would work, and even sort of a situation where, well, the mail goes actually gets delivered to the guy's neighbor, and you know it's this elderly woman who brings you the <laughs> the mail that was intended to be delivered to you, all that sort of stuff. So totally, that's awesome. Oh yeah, yeah, it was fascinating, and you know the Europeans are great. They they built these elaborate vivariums, they call them. Right. For their reptiles. Yeah. You, you know what I'm talking about, right? Totally. The Absolutely. standard with the cork back and all this stuff, fabulous stuff. Yeah. Living habitats. Uh, and and it's, it was so inspirational to meet some of these people. And, and, you know, they were just fascinated to have an American come over that was so interested in what they were doing. And it just became quite the, quite the brotherhood, really. An awful lot of really wonderful people that... Uh, we shared information and contacts with, and that's how how things got going. Hmm. That's, that's awesome. <clears throat> yeah, you guys, you guys missed all that wonderful stuff. <laughs> I know, right? I mean, it's, <laughs> as cool teasing, as it is to have the internet, it's uh, it's also it's a bummer because that's the stuff, and that's why you know I'm so grateful that you came on, and I love talking to to folks that are of your uh, your generation in terms of keeping this stuff and all that because it's. It sounds so fun. I'm sure there was a lot of uh, struggle and trouble with it too, but it's it sounds like a really great time. It was an adventure. It truly was. Uh, you know, I went to South America and caught emerald tree boas, trying to learn about them. I, you know, that's you can't do that on the internet. You just can't no. do it. <laughs> and. and uh, you know, to drag yourself down to Peru or Colombia, you know, I went to the Guyanas and even snuck into Venezuela once. Uh, what an adventure all those things were. And, and you know, you'd meet the bird people and the fish people and, and uh, there's, you know, there are the, the people that are involved in these countries. You'd meet and see some of the things they did. It was just fascinating. I wouldn't trade it for the world. Yeah, it gives you a whole new appreciation for an animal or a species when you're actually in their environment and get a get a feel for what it's really like. You know, I I don't know. I I, I can. You mean they're not relate. born in these little plastic tubs, and you <laughs> no. know that's the way they've existed yeah. for thousands of years? That blows yeah, my wait, mind. Wait a minute. <laughs> well, um, I I think ball pythons evolved from a plastic tub. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. You may be right. <laughs> um, Certainly, they've changed over over a very short period of time. <laughs> that speciation's quick. Yeah, so, really. <laughs> so if I, I, I'm sure, man. As we're talking, you know, me and Rob are messaging each other back and forth about topics that we want to circle back on. So we're like, uh, 
you know, catching emerald tree boas and uh, African rocks, pythons and Sri Lankans, all that. But I'm curious, like, so with diamond pythons, they're really not, uh, well, in my experience so far, they're not hard. They're just different than carpets. So, like, what was your setup like? I know, like, the cage size and you had, you know, what you use for substrate. But, like, how did you heat them? How did you go about, uh, you know, light cycles, all that kind of stuff? Well, as I said, I was I was living in South Florida at the time, so I had a window in the room, so they got the light cycle uh, that occurred throughout the year. You know, the the daily changes and the seasonal changes. They, okay. And likewise, temperature and humidity. I didn't augment any of those things. I I felt they were far enough north of the equator as diamonds were south of the equator. Uh, so although winter was summer and summer is winter, I mean, you know, they're just going to have to get used to living in North America, as far as I was right. concerned. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to fight that. But right. uh, so I didn't really, I, 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 we didn't have heating pads and all that stuff back then. We bought gutter heating cable, which right. we used to wrap around right. gutters right. to keep them from freezing. Just to keep them from would, freezing, yeah. Yeah, we'd staple that to the bottom of your cage and then... I, my first thermostats were the chicken incubator thermostats that were sure. a thin brass wafer. So it was a little crude. It was very crude, actually. But, uh, you know, I, I always had a, a warm spot in a cage if an animal wanted to go there. And mm-hmm. the thing I discovered about diamonds is they didn't particularly care about it. Um, so that w- that was nice. But another nice thing about um Leaving, having a, a large window and room where you're raising your reptiles is they also get the moon cycles, and I love this guy. I only laugh because this is this this is Eric's favorite thing. I I, I don't mean to oh, cut really? you off. Oh really? I'm glad it's an unnatural someone. reaction because of it. Yeah, Eric Listen, loves it. I get and heck. I mean, finding reptiles in the wild, I'm totally with you. I'm all for the new moon. So uh, keep going. I don't want to stop stop the train. Yeah. Well, well, all, I, all I'm saying is that you know these animals in the wild also experience all the cycles of the moon. That and, and we're talking millions of years of evolution, not these pathetic totally. little lifespans that we have. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. You know, these animals were and, and to take them and throw them in a room and put fluorescent lights on them. Oh, I don't get it, uh, and I never did. I mean, all my reptile buildings over all the years have always had lots of of uh, windows. And I just let the the sun and the and the um, the moon come in on them. Uh, moon cycles in some some ungulate species are very important to breeding. I I don't think mm-hmm. anyone's ever done a study that I've heard of about how it may affect repti- reptilian breeding, but it can't hurt is the way I look at it. I know you can ball, breed a ball python in a room where it's never seen the light of day in its entire life, <laughs> and just drop the temperature three or four degrees or five degrees in a, in a certain time of year, and they breed. Great, fine. But when I was working with some of these animals back then, I didn't know that. So I was I was doing everything I could to replicate the nature as much as I could. I did it. You know, I was the first person that ever bred Peruvian red tails back then. That was even earlier. That was in the 70s. And I had a similar setup with them. I just wanted to bring the world into the animals and let them adjust because they're, they're pretty primitive animals in reality. Mm-hmm. Right. 
Yeah. So hmm. And we know they're getting thing. these hard stimuli that are coming across a variety of things, whether it's humidity or and humidity turns into food and temperature and you know all the mm-hmm. as you say the lunar cycle, all this different stuff. Yeah, the, you have something that's not that complicated, and we know that the. Eric and I talk about this all the time, that there are six or seven factors, and maybe you get something, especially if it's a captive-bred animal, you get something that will actually produce. Maybe you have to hit three or four of those things, and that will really help you. And then if it's a ball python, maybe one or two, (laughs) you know, especially now four or five, six generations deep with some of this stuff. Yeah, for sure, for sure. No, it's it's fascinating what what, uh, may or may not affect these animals. But, you know, breeding, obviously the male has to go through spermatogenesis and the female has to develop fertile eggs. And that doesn't always happen with, without the right stimuli. So back then we were searching for every possible clue we could to, to make sure those things happen. Because we had lots of snakes in the, in the 60s, for instance, in early 70s that were breeding, but they weren't laying eggs or they weren't having fertile eggs or they weren't producing live offspring. Uh, and that's when we we all, you know, just from all over the country and all over the world, people started figuring there's more to it than that. These are these are primitive <laughs> right. animals that are clued, cued into things that we don't. Uh, maybe as humans, we don't understand. We don't need those stimuli. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so true. Um, so I guess back then. So how did you even? measure temperatures or anything. I mean, did you? Did What did oh, you God. use? Thermometer? <laughs> I mean, uh, did you... No, I didn't use the thermometer. I had uh, a Bendix. I, I went to a scientific supply. I can't remember the name of it, but it was mm-hmm. a sci- scientific supply uh, supplied uh, scientists and, and colleges with, with instrumentation. Mm-hmm. And I bought this, this uh, unit. It was about the size of a bread box. And it measured temperature and relative humidity. And it was a a needle that moved up and down as the temperature changed. And there was a rotating drum, and you had to soak the needle in ink once a week so it would make (laughs) a line on the graph paper on the drum. And and (laughs) the relative humidity gauge was human blonde hair strung between two points that expanded or contracted because apparently blonde human hair is very sensitive <laughs> to humidity. So I, I wish I still had that thing. But that's how I recorded and kept track of it. And, I, and each drum had a sheet that lasted one week, and I just had these reams of these things. So I would, would record my temperatures and humidities that way. Uh, as far as light goes, you know, I, I was dealing with ambient light wherever I lived, and mm-hmm. uh, didn't try to fight it. Uh, now, with emerald tree boas, it, it was more of a challenge because they're equatorial, more or less, and that's mm-hmm. pretty much throughout the year a 12-12 photo period. Yeah. But it does vary, and, and you know, now you can go, go look it up on the Internet, you know, but back <laughs> then. Uh, and, of course, the emerald tree boas' range is huge. I mean, right. they, Where the they come from a range from. bigger bigger sure. than the United States, so there there could be a lot of variation uh, uh, from the northern to the southern part of their range. But anyway, emeralds proved to be relatively easy to breed. Just cool them down a little, and little shorter days in the in the winter, and, and a lot of humidity and and rain on them during the the rainy season, and they bred and give them a heating lamp and. 
to uh, for the gravid female to cook her babies, and everything worked out pretty sure. well. Um, well, and but I would think, right, even with those things you talked about, you know, being equatorial and having, you know, 12-12 more or less, but it, it is more or less, right? It's not exactly that. Correct. Because even if you go Correct. overboard and you hit it as like 14-8 to, you know, uh, to go mm-hmm. in the uh, complete opposite direction or, you know, 14-10 um, to 8-16, like you're just accentuating what they're used to. So maybe it's beyond kind of the normal parameters, but they're just feeling it that much more. It might, a- might not actually be a bad thing. Oh, I, I agree with that, and, and that's what I did. I mean, I just said the only way to, to do that otherwise was to close off natural sunlight completely, and I just, um, you know, with all these species I was working with back then, I just didn't want to do that at all. I awesome. when, I, when I raised uh, crocodile monitors, I lived in, in uh, Florida at the time, and I had these huge outside cages for them with no tops, so they got full sun, they got rain, and the cages were about 10 feet wide, 20 feet long, and 6 or 7 feet tall. And wow. these these things would get full sunlight during the day. Now, they could go underground. They they, they had stumps and logs, and, and they had some sure. burrows in the cage, so they could get out of the sun. But they would sit there and soak up the sun during the hottest time of the day, I mean, noon to 2 o'clock, just right. sit there and... I'd throw a temperature gun on them, and they'd be 110 degrees. Right. You think, totally. And you're not dead. You know, <laughs> I mean, you, know you take a, a, a snake to 110, they're gone. Um, but I, well, I, as an ambient, right? If they're if they're actually if they were in the same setup, they can do the same darn thing, right? You know, if they're roaming free in the wild, they can sit there for 30 minutes or an hour at mm-hmm. 110, but then they can cruise off into the shade underneath the you know underneath the tree they're sitting on or underneath the bark or whatever and all of a sudden they're 70 again it totally i've seen it with you know monitors where it's you know everyone says oh you need this super hot spot and they say well no higher than 130 135 and it's like i've had them at 170 and they'll sit there for about five minutes and then they'll go to 135 and then they'll go down to 80 you know and then they'll go to 65 if, yeah. you, if they have the opportunity to do that, they can get that hot. It's just they can't be a constant, that high temp, just overwhelmed with that temperature. Exactly. Mm-hmm. One of the, the things I struggled with on snakes was, um, you know, I, I never kept snakes outside. I, I did some in Florida, but, but when I lived in New York and Colorado and Georgia, I, uh, I, I you know, didn't couldn't let them out. The nights were too cold and just various things. Um, so you'd have heat lamps, but I never felt that heat lamps were really anywhere near as good as an animal going out, laying on a rock in the sun <laughs> and absorbing heat from both top and bottom. But when the sun hits you, I mean, it hits every square centimeter of your body. Uh, and the heat lamp really doesn't replicate that very well at all. Um, so that's I've always struggled with that and not been happy with it, but it, I don't know what the answer would be other than sure. getting them outside, but that's a lot of Living lot of in South Florida, it. right? <laughs> yeah, well, well I, I, I raised uh, I raised Bowens outside when I lived in Colorado. Uh, yeah, I had a totally. 30, I had a 30-foot-long cage with a hole in the side of my house <laughs> where they could crawl inside the house at night, and Bowens are very, very 
uh, intelligent snake. They they really figure out where they are and and you know if you put a ball python out there, they'd sit there when it got cold right. at night. A and ball just and die. a firm. Yeah. Yeah, sure. and a, the bull ones. I I had a, a canvas covering over the door. They just push the canvas open and go in at night. And but and during the day, they would be out there soaking that heat up to every square inch of their body. And, of course, in the winter, I kept them inside, and I just had a heat lamp. And I just kept thinking, this is nothing like what you guys are getting in the summer. But right. until they invent a heat lamp, they can hit the entire <laughs> uh, evenly hit the whole snake. I guess we'll just have to live with what we've got. Right. I mean, thermal wow. regulation in a cold-blooded animal is a pretty fascinating thing. Yeah. Oh, so yeah, like, for all sure. All the processes that the body undergoes just in terms of there was a guest Eric had on earlier talking about digestion and all the different processes that the body goes, that their bodies go mm-hmm. through when they're doing that and all the, yeah, it's totally fascinating. Yeah. I, I, I will never profess to understand it. I, I, I live in Tennessee now and in our winters get cold. We get ice on the ponds. And this, this year in December, we had a, a warm spell where it got up into the sixties and I've got a pond down here from the house, and, and there's these big turtles in it. They look like big painted turtles. I don't know what they are, southern spiders or something. Middle of December, they came out of the mud out of their hibernation at the bottom <laughs> of the pond, which had to be like 35 degrees. Sure. They're up on the logs sunning themselves. I don't understand sure. it. I, how can you be down there at 30 degrees or 30-something And degrees? aware that it's like that. Yeah, aware of it, and then somehow get your body going to come up and sun yourself? No, I just, (laughs) I I don't profess to understand the the whole, uh, especially especially the radiant radiant heat from above for reptiles. Um, I know they need it, but it's 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 amazing we're we're able to breed stuff uh, with just (laughs) right shortcutting so much. We do (laughs) (laughs) totally. Yeah, what do you think about at least with some of it? Not with the yeah, bones right? yet, so much. <laughs> <laughs> What's your thoughts on humidity? What, what, how do you feel that that plays a part in uh, in breeding? You think that's? Uh, well, I, I think it's pretty. I think it's pretty important. I think it's part of the the uh, you know the, the cycle that the animals go go through. You know, they I mean, they have cycles for times of year when they eat the most, uh, when it's mm-hmm. warmer, when the days are longer. Uh, and, and humidity and rainy seasons. I mean, rainy seasons really seem to turn emerald tree boas on for breeding. I mean, I, I used to have cages that were built with uh, those those um, tubs in the bottom that they mix mix cement in, so I could just pour water in off these sprinklers <laughs> every night, and I would just douse these guys with water. And oh my God, you, you could almost see them saying thank you, thank you, thank you when you did it. Uh, they, you know, it really was something they seemed to need. I, I think a lot of reptiles uh, spend a you – know, well, let's just take a ball python. I think it spends a lot of its time underground. And it, I think it's pretty humid down there. That's my philosophy on Gila monsters as well. Uh, they say they spend 98% of their life underground. I, I don't know how they could do that and still eat. But um, nevertheless, if, if you dig down deep underground in the desert in the summer, you are going to hit – 60 degree dirt totally. and, and and there's humidity down there so 
So I've I've always given my healers a, a lot of opportunity to get get wet and humid. Uh, it's, I can't get really give them a, a tunnel that far down, but I I think that their respiratory systems are are uh, easily compromised when they're too dry. Right. Uh, sure. So I I I'm a, a big believer in humidity. I try to match the humidity as much as I can for the species, which which is nice to keep one species per room because. You know, right. you, you don't want to keep keep colubrids as humid as you're going to keep your emerald tree boys. Right. Right. So I, don't you if, I, use... I don't know if I answered your question. I, I, I yeah, yeah, yeah. Say I, I think it's very important. Did you use, uh, like, a humidifier in your room? Or, I mean, I guess when you were in Florida, you just used maybe the outside, you know, humidity? Or how did you go about that? Well, I, I, dep- depending on the species, again, um, Burmese pythons never worried about it. Uh, but emeralds, I would spray them down at the crack of dawn with with a, a hand sprayer. Uh, actually, okay. kind of where you pump up the, like a two and a half gallon deal, you know, you hang on your shoulder, and go yep. spray them down yep. in the morning. And then at night, uh, I'd spray them down again. Emeralds emeralds drink a lot right off a leaf; they just drink droplets, um, so that that's a good thing for them. But but uh, well, for instance, right now I've got this really interesting. Uh, project going on with a, a one-of-a-kind ball python that I've got here. And I, so I've got her and her progeny and a few others in this one room. And, uh-huh. you know, in the winter, our homes get very dry because of heating. Right. I, they're in a, a cement-floored room, and I go in there and I pour a gallon of water on the floor every morning just, wow. just to keep the room more humid. So I don't, ha- I don't have to get their cage humid. Uh, and I don't control the temperature of the cages. I control the temperature of the room. Um, so I try, I try to avoid micromanaging each individual cage as much as I can in a situation like that. But I'm, I'm getting off course here a little bit. Humidity, I think, is very important to reptiles. It, they, a lot of them live very close to the ground where it's not necessarily dry all the time. Right, right. Okay. All right. Um, now... Let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, your approach to breeding diamond pythons. Um, walk us through, you know, what you did, how you did it, and, you know, um, and how you came about thinking about how, how to do it, <laughs> if you will. Well, like I said, no people got copulation out of them back then, but no eggs. Mm-hmm. Right. So that, you know, right away... Uh, I mean, the big study that everybody was referring to back then was a study done, I think, in Saskatchewan or Manitoba on on uh, garter snakes. Okay. I don't know if you guys remember that, but uh, I, and I can't remember what it was called, but it was a lot of us referred to that because they, they garter snakes were there was some some place up there where they were gathering in these huge dens, and they found them in breeding balls in the spring and. Yeah, they started thinking about the whole concept of of inactivity and you know the, the development of sexual function during during that time of of cooling and inactivity. So um, a lot of us were looking at a lot of reptiles that way at that point in time. We were we were talking to each other about it. I mean, get on the phone with Dale Marcellini at the National Zoo and just talk for an hour about you know. <laughs> What do you think? You know, these sure. garter snakes, and you know, what what can we do with a a, a D. Alberts python? 
So, <laughs> you know, that, that's that's when I started studying the habitat as much as I could. And like we said, it was a very difficult thing to do, but and, and the knowledge was very limited. I, I can remember being in libraries just searching all over the place for some information on on the the uh, climate uh, month to month in in Australia <laughs> or Brazil or, or Papua New Guinea. I just was figuring that out. So so my my perspective and not just me. We were all thinking that way back then. Was figuring out how to match the, the habitat because these animals were surviving they were alive but they weren't right they exist where they are right so yeah <laughs> sure. yeah very little was i mean there was breeding but very little back then so anyway you know with diamonds i i did my research i i spent a lot of time in libraries because nowhere else to go and then i started uh writing to some folks in australia and then eventually a phone call and would have loved to have gone over there but just didn't get over um but but i found out as much as I could about the, the natural habitat of diamond pythons. And so I set out to, to duplicate that as much as I could. And at the time, I was living in South Florida, uh, right down in the Miami area, and the weather was, was uh, pretty close. So I decided, okay, I'm, I'm leaving the window open year-round. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, it does go down to freezing there occasionally, so I would close the window for that. But uh, sure. I just left it open and let them get quite cold. And they became extremely uh, sedentary when it got cold. Like they would curl up and not move for a month. Wow. And I was, I mean, it was scaring the bejesus out of me. <laughs> You know, I mean, you've got you work so hard to get this animal, and you go, okay, I'm not going to feed it, and I'm going to let it get down to 40, 50 degrees for months on end. Um, but I, but if you know, during just, the day it, it boosted back up, or maybe there was a even an hour or two window where maybe that temperature came up a little bit, or the sun was coming through the room, it might boost it a little. You know, all this sort of stuff that they, you know is happening, but, but maybe we're not accounting for. I know, but they didn't come out to do anything. They stayed coiled really? up. Really? They just sat there? Yeah. Just they, stayed. They, okay. just, they just sat there. Tommy Crutchfield, uh, down, he's down in Homestead. He's got, he's got a couple right. diamonds, and he outside. keeps them outside yeah. year-round. And I was down there December a couple of years ago, and they were actually moving. I mean, it was cold. It was miserable cold, like <laughs> 50 or something. You know, for South Florida, that's, that's right. horrible. Right, that's cold, yeah. Sure. And the cage he had him in really wasn't getting much more than a little bit of mottled sunlight coming into it. And I was figuring if I was a snake, I'd just stay coiled up. I, that little bit of patch here and there is going to move anyway, the sunlight, so why bother? But they actually were moving around uh, slower <laughs> than death, uh, uh-huh. but c- coming out during the day. Now, now, mine, because they were inside a room, didn't have that sunlight exposure, so that's where I came up with a the theory that, that that they might just totally hibernate during the winter. Um, right. I, I was going on the limited information I had. Uh, and as I said, that's been debunked. People are, are breeding them now without doing that. So I don't know what they're actually doing different because I, I haven't followed it that well. But uh, 
kudos to them. I, I, I don't think it's well. I don't think it's terribly different for the for the most part. You know, I think there are a couple outliers, but I mean, there's outliers with everything, right? Where maybe maybe things can mm-hmm. work, but generally speaking, people are kind of replicating in a cage or attempting to replicate in a cage what what Tom's seeing or what you saw with Tom's stuff outside, where it's it's cool um, cool to cold. And then, you know, they're giving them limited exposure during the day so they can get an hour or two where they can warm up. And frankly, I mean, that's the thing with Colorado where I've said throughout this time, I've said, oh, I don't think the article's really debunked. It's just kind of, well, if you approach it in Colorado, it, it's actually warmer than maybe you'd think. You know, you get that a handful of hours in the late yeah, morning, after, early afternoon where it'll warm up, even if it's, I, I mean, heck, we got snow this past week, you know, I, I, I've been sending text messages to, to Eric and Keith McPeak and all these folks uh, every time it happens where we'll get snow, but then the big hot thing comes out and it melt any place that I've shoveled melts. It's not the Northeast where that's not the case, you know? Um, so yeah. if you kept them in a box, they're going to change, they're going to change temperature. You could actually pull the same thing off it. You know, just it's a little less secure, or we feel like we have less control, but the same thing would actually work. So I, I don't think it's fair to say that that's debunked. It's, maybe it needed the caveat of uh, South Florida, where the the temperature doesn't get quite as cold, or Colorado, where you know the sun is much closer and it, it does weird things that it doesn't do in Philadelphia. Yeah, definitely different sun there. Well, I I literally came out and said back then. Uh, I recommended just putting them straight down into a hibernation like you would a corn snake or a, uh, a king, an eastern king snake or something. Just put them down for three months, dark and cold, and leave them alone. And uh, and my feeling, and I was strictly going, uh, this was conjecture on my part. I had no, no uh, research to back up my opinion on this, so not scientific at all. But I, I thought that if you let the animal get just a little bit warm and then cool them back down day by day, day after day, that it might actually uh, compromise their immune system or, or their resistance to, to bacteria. Let them get a little right. warm and cool, cool them. So that was my, my theory. But, again, wasn't backed up by, by experimentation or any real knowledge. Um, but I was successful doing that with them. Uh, I eventually, instead of... Once I I moved to Colorado and I was breeding diamonds and I just made them cold for the whole winter and left it at that and it worked for me. Sure. But yeah, I mean uh, that's that's the thing. It's it's I I totally agree and that's what I've, Eric can attest to this. I've said this the whole time is being here doing them that way is because it's not the same as it would be doing it you know in Philly or whatever. It's just or probably most places in the U.S. but. It's it's just yeah. so radically different. Oh, oh, Colorado is, yeah. is a special place to do that, as, as we both know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Winter yeah, is a, a joy out there. One of the things that <laughs> right? uh, and, uh, Eric loves it. You know, he doesn't love yeah. interrupting him, but he loves that. Uh, you know, he loves these text messages where I say, "Oh man, you know, we just got a bomb cyclone and we got eight inches of snow," and then. I shoveled it, and the next morning it was ice for an hour, and then it was dry. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I know, I know. I used to have a ranch in Wyoming, and my mailbox was about a half a mile down the mountain from where the house was. And I've always told people that I would walk down when it was 
20 degrees, 30 degrees out in just a very light shirt, walk down yeah. and get my mail. And I moved to Atlanta at one point in time. And when it was 30 degrees, oh, my God, that was cold. You're freezing. It's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> the, the same you, thing. You don't I, have I wear that, shorts that, all the time. You, well, know? you don't and, have and, that and intense, I, clean sunlight, uh, the humidity. It's, it's so different. What a difference. Yeah. Uh, no, yeah, I, I wear we're shorts all the time. meteorology and... thing here, but. <laughs> well, I don't know. It's fun. It's fun for you and yeah. me, at least. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So, go ahead. Uh, so anyway, I just cut to, you off enough. You know, to to answer the question of breeding, so so I just came up with this this idea that okay, they they come from a climate where it does get cold. Let's put them through a winter cycle, and uh, not feed them during the winter, and then when they come out in the spring, feed them and and then breed them, and, and which is what I did. I I warmed them up, uh, you know, by about the end of March and fed them for a couple of weeks and introduced them to, to each other. I, I always keep the males and females apart during the year and uh, got breeding right away. And the, the females, I, I bred, my first year I bred them, I could, I, both my females got gravid from two different males. And, um, awesome. you know, just, just with all, all the pythons, I, I saw them obsolete and, and they went off feed and they started basking more and more and then they laid their eggs. It was, it's pretty much boilerplate from that point on. Very mm-hmm. gratifying, believe me. <laughs> did you, as as a question, uh, did did you put both males with both females, or did you just do pairs and pairs? Because I have my own theory that you know, in the wild, as you hit on with the Manitoba garter snakes, like I think we're kind of it's the human OCD of saying, oh, it's this pair of snakes, and I think actually maybe the utilization of multiple males triggers things and we could actually be more successful if we were less focused on saying it was this male with this female. I agree with you completely. I did not it back then because I was getting active copulation with both of my pairs and I did want to keep us totally separate bloodlines because they just weren't available as captive born. Right. So I, I wanted my, my two litters to be completely unrelated uh, but I wouldn't hesitate to put males in. I mean, male combat is common in a lot of species. I'm good lord, of, uh, almost all of them actually, and and uh, it certainly can get the males uh, motivated to breed. But nothing nothing gets them as motivated as is the right pheromones from a female if she's ready. Totally, mm-hmm. if she's re- really ready to go. Yeah, that's that's all it takes. Uh, now, you know, I mean, there's lots of animals that, that I mean, anacondas, which I've bred. Um, and I bred them in captivity with one male, but look what they do in the wild. I've seen the, the film. Right. The animals you got all these males every... riding on the female. Sure. Yeah, I, that's <laughs> got to be pretty frustrating for the boys, but um, <laughs> absolutely amazing uh, spectacle to see. So I, I think that, that male combat is, is a big part of it. But I, I didn't have to do it. I, I think if I ever had a male that didn't breed, I would have put two males together. But males can can really hurt each other. I had a male reticulated oh. python kill another male of mine. It was a very, very valuable male that he killed. And uh, <laughs> uh, I, well, I've I heard of them breaking the males, breaking out of cages that. and breaking into other ones to, to kill, <laughs> you know, like they're literally yeah. in separate cages and they break out to break into another cage and kill that male. It's it's until you've actually had it happen, it's hard to believe. But 
my God. The retic is a very strong animal, but you'd think a, a, another male the same size would be just as strong. But if they they get the right bite on them, they, and right. in this case, he, he literally ripped his ridge, rib cage open with biting and tearing and killed wow. the poor thing. And Oh, it's a, it's a beautiful genetic trait. It just disappeared that morning. So, right. I, well, I've, I mean... Maybe this brings it up. I know you've had one of you've had all sorts of one of a kind things, but uh, I know that there was another retake that you, that you had, and maybe that's the one that I was thinking of. Yeah, well, I I had two unique retakes. Um, um, one one we just called purple pink. It was uh, the snake was purple and pink. It was absolutely stunning, and that's the one that uh, died that day. So I I never got to go anywhere with that project, um, but I I love retics. They're an absolute wonderful snake to work with. But when they're big, they can be dangerous. And I've mm-hmm. always carried up a, a, a one of those little canisters of mace on my on my hip when I'm working with the big snakes. It it saved my life once, so I I I was glad I got in the habit of doing that. Ooh, okay. You, well, you have to indulge in the story. I mean, you know, uh, what did you have a run-in oh, with a? Oh, um, yeah, it was an anaconda. Uh, I was raising them outside in South Florida. I had these cages just as big as the cage I described for the uh, croc monitors, and I had uh, sunk uh, little kids' swimming pools in their cages, full of water, and I. Was feed them rabbits or ducks, and I went in one day with a duck uh, on a set of Filson tongs, so I was going to, you know, put it out over the water, and they just come out of nowhere and grab it. And I just made a mistake, and this snake came right at me, and it was a big one. It was a, like 17-foot, you know, way over 200-pound snake, and she, as she she came at me, I put my hand down to block her, and she got my hand and my my uh, right thigh and grabbed oh. and and pinned my hand to my thigh. So all of a sudden, my one armed man fighting an anaconda, and, and I was alone, and uh, and she started coiling oh, around gosh. me. But uh, I, you know, as long as you keep them off your your belly and right, core constrict yeah. you. Yeah, if they can't, sure. if you you can keep your diaphragm working, you can keep breathing. So I wasn't worried about that. But, uh, but I mean, you know, I I had mace. I just reached with my left hand, and I'm left-handed, and it was on my left hip. I just reached over and I gave her a shot in the face, and uh, she came right off me hard. But I spent the next several hours in agonizing pain because all the cuts on my hand and my my yeah. thigh. Oof. We're full of mace, and oh my god! Oh, <laughs> I mean, I just, oh. That wow! Was, that was a, that's a big snake. I mean, they're big and powerful. Yeah, that's a big snake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm fascinated with anaconda. It's a beautiful animal, but I've caught them in the wild. It's just a beautiful, beautiful creature. But um, no, I I don't know how I got on the subject of mace, but it's it's a good thing to carry with the big snakes. I, well, like, oh, the good thing is the, the diatribes are the best. So uh, keep just just to go where it takes you. That that's that's yeah. most of the fun. Well, I was going to say I, I cringe when I see these things on Facebook or somewhere where somebody has a, a 
baby, an infant, on the ground with a big Burmese python next right. to it. It's oh. literally instantaneous. It, it's it's crazy. Yeah, that, if if that snake somehow had a feeding response, grabbed that kid and wrapped, it would be game over. I mean, it'd be over. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and that's that's that's. Um, incredibly uh, stupid, I guess. I don't know what other word to put to it. And, and I've had plenty of huge snakes that just seem as tame as tame could be. They're wonderful, never gave me a bit of trouble their whole lives. I still carry my mace with them. Wow. Um, well, I wanted to ask real quick uh, about mm-hmm. uh, just going back to diamond pythons. Did you, uh, you know, I've, I've heard that they're big into uh, nests. I mean, have you had an experience with that? Did you use a special, did you use a nest box or, you know, um, anything like that? No, I never used a nest box, but you have to sort of picture the cage I'm talking about here. When I say mm-hmm. there's cypress mulch in it, I mean like six inches deep. <laughs> oh, okay. Not, it doesn't need okay. a nest box. The whole thing's a nest box. <laughs> right. Yeah, literally. So when they would, you know, sort of bore into it and coil it up and then start laying their eggs. They they were forming a nest box of sorts. Um, so, you know, and again, there were palm fronds in there, and, and I threw a lot of potting soil in just just to give it a little more consistency the and moisture, hold moisture density. better than, yeah. than the uh, cypress mulch did. So they, they, uh, they made their own nest, so to speak. But I never let them incubate themselves. I always uh, artificially incubated the eggs. And we didn't have incubators back then either, so that was another <laughs> Maybe that, that was a mistake. You should have just left them in there, but not enough control, right? Yeah, well, I've, I've done it with a lot of pythons over the years, um, and I, I love watching a female incubate her own eggs, but it just breaks my heart to watch them sitting there, you know, vibrating themselves or twitching right. just, just working so, so sorry hard for them yeah yeah i mean yeah. and they and when it's done they're so skinny and i just i just uh try to uh, spare them that if sure. that's one luxury totally. of being in captivity but I, i've done it plenty of times <laughs> it's rewarding to watch oh yeah for sure it's really it's really awesome you're talking to two guys who love maternal incubation you know for for snakes to do it so yeah it's, oh yeah it's a beautiful I've done thing. It so I've done it. Times. I've even done it with chondros. I mean, it's it's awesome. Really? It's amazing, no. though, how they do, they don't even seem to care about their young. The instant they hatch, they're like goodbye. Right, they're done. <laughs> <laughs> I, know, I, I need to go catch something to eat, man. <laughs> I know you put all this I'm time dying into over this. Here. You think you'd at least look at them. Right. Oh, God. No. But you know, that's the joys of motherhood, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> None of us will know about it, but so be it. Um, so I, we hit on this a little bit earlier, um, but uh, how did you get the guy? How did you get them started? Like once you had the babies, you know, I imagine that's the next big hurdle. Uh, did you have? Do, well, let me ask yeah. this: Do you have any tricks or tips or anything that you could share with us that maybe could help us besides just feeding them straight skinks or lizards? Well. Just all the things that the chondropython people have learned over the years, um, I was sort of in on the, the the pioneering days of trying to figure out how to get these buggers to feed. 
mm-hmm. it wasn't hard to figure out they they liked uh, lizards. And of course, in South Florida, where I bred them, we had plenty of anoles. Just go out at night with a flashlight and pluck them off the bushes. <laughs> so, Love you know, I, yeah, I just did that. But uh, some of them actually took pinkies right off the bat, which is real relief for the keeper, you know, but right. um, you feel real good it, about those. Yeah. But, you know, they're they're if if you've got uh geckos or, or holes available to you then I don't see anything wrong with it. And once once they get a little bigger they're going to transition to rodents anyway. Right, because they do. Right. Sure. Right. Yeah, totally. They do. They they're they're programmed to do that. So why fight it if you have the availability? Now, you know, some guy living in Michigan, that's a that's a bit of a challenge. I could just go out and catch him anytime I wanted. Um, mm-hmm. And but having them shipped up to you is sometimes a nightmare. Um, trying to get, especially with chondros getting the, the right size, you know, full grown and all probably right. need a baby chondro. I'm, I'm exaggerating, yeah. but but um, no, but it, you know, it's sure that bite they're gonna that might do some damage. Oh yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, that that could be a, a real challenge, but you know, I mean, guys have done things with with uh, pinky pumps. They've done things with chondros where they brain them. You know, they cut the brain open and it gets them to eat. Uh, they tease them to death, which doesn't works on some chondros, doesn't on others. But diamonds don't like it. Only at all. the ones that bite. <laughs> yeah. 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 Right. Diamonds don't. But you do that to really diamond, bite, they just right? want to get. Yeah, diamonds yeah. just want to get out of there. They just like you start teasing them. They go, no, I'm. I don't want anything to do with you. So that's tough. But then, you know, scenting them with lizards or lizard skin a little bit, you have to get pretty creative. And that, that turns a lot of people away from diamonds. And that's why I always recommend not buying a diamond unless it's solidly on rodents. Uh, because if you're not equipped to deal with their, their finicky start behavior, then, then that's not a good thing. But they, they can be a challenge and they can be maddening for sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. All good so fun, heard, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Very cool. Well, um, compared to some other stuff, maybe not not the worst thing in the world. <laughs> there are things that are worse for sure. They're not live tadpoles or something. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Anything else? Um, you know, there's a couple other things, obviously, that we're going to hit on as far as some of the stuff you mentioned just in talking, but. Any other things as far as diamonds go? Any experiences or any tips, tricks, anything like that? Or did we hit anybody on you sold a bunch to that we can buy some from? Say, okay, we know these are legit because they came from Stan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I sold most of mine in Europe. I was really repaying debts to folks who helped me get them. I, well, Tom Crutchfield bought a lot from me, but I, most of them went to Europe. Um, no, they're they're actually once they're established, they're an easy snake to keep. They don't need to be ultra hot or anything. They're, you know, they're they're fine with 80 degrees as a maximum for just keeping them during the year, and they can drop down to 70 at night, no sweat. Um, do not overfeed them. Don't feed them too much. Uh, I I used to always joke, and I think I mentioned one of my articles about emeralds, or maybe it was diamonds, but I would you know walk by a cage and go. Did I feed that one last week, or was it the week before? And and I would go, I don't know. I'll feed them next week. So right, maybe in I, a couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I was happy it was two or three weeks. Um, 
and, and an emerald especially will be sitting there in that strike pose all night long, day after day after day, well, night after night, just like they're sure. ready to eat. And I'm going, no, no, you're not getting anything. Um, diamonds, they, they don't sit around like that or, or hang like that where they aggressively look like they're ready to feed. But uh, I, I feel there was a lot of trouble with them, and, and Dave Barker could really concur this from our conversations that, that – uh, a lot of trouble with overfeeding them and treating them like they were a Burmese python, trying to grow them up too fast, trying to trying to get to where you're you're making money as quick as possible. It's just not a good thing for diamonds. It's I don't think they they find as much food in, in the wild because of the the habitat which they come in or the climate. And so short go slow with them, make the them stuff. yeah yeah make them slim and strong, not skinny, but you know not fat. Um, fat diamond. Uh, Fat diamonds die. They really do. That was the, the biggest knock uh, back then was people would get them fat and they die. Huh. And, uh, yeah, and, and, you know, I don't know if they were dying from obesity, like, you know, uh, sure. trouble with the heart, or, but uh, Dave really felt that there was a skeletal deficiency going on that they just couldn't, couldn't grow and develop their skeletal system adequately. And, and again, right, I always go back. We're talking, yeah, we're ta- we're talking millions of years of evolution. How these things developed to become a diamond python by living in a certain uh, habitat and climate. So, some things you can get away with, some things you can't. So, just take it easy with diamonds. Uh, they can grow up to be strong and healthy and live twenty plus years. Pretty relatively easy to breed. The young are just a royal pain in the butt to get going, but once they do, they're awesome. Right. Okay. Yeah. Once, did they, you once keep... they get started, though, they're great. Oh yeah, yeah, that's for sure. I um, tell you what, you... Eric, you send your babies to me, and and we'll do it that way. It'll be fun. Don't worry about it. I'm dealing with these <laughs> there you Caribbean go. boas that are much worse. Don't worry about it. <laughs> right. That'll be a walk in the park for you. No worries. Um, Pretty much. Did man. you? Did you do? Did you keep the babies the same as you kept the adults? Like you didn't do anything special for the babies, right? As far as temperatures or anything like that. No, no, I didn't. And how did you keep the babies? Because you didn't have racks back then. What did you put them in? Like five gallon fish tanks, or? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> back back in the seventies, we didn't even have screen tops for aquariums. I bought. Yeah, you had to make them. Right. <laughs> yeah, I bought pegboard and fit it to the inside rim of an aquarium, and oh I bought those hooks that you put in the pegboard to hang a hammer off of or something. Uh-huh. Yeah. I threaded the end of them and put a spring on them and a washer and stuck them through the pegboard and hooked them up under the rim of the aquarium to hold them down. Very similar oh, to my dad's. Let's see, I grew up with reptiles and my dad was big time into them and like it just it always fascinates me because, you know, and this was during the eighties, you know, I was a kid during the eighties and uh mm-hmm. he would have all these setups like that and like I think now I talk to him now and I'm like, Oh dad, they would be all over you on Facebook, <laughs> keeping the fish tanks. You know what I mean? No lights. You'd be just you'd be just hung out to dry. Oh. They would be all over oh, you. Gosh. Like uh, Facebook police uh, would be, be on the BOI and the FBI and every other. <laughs> Eric, they've but, had a uh, snake for 12 months. They've had one <laughs> snake for 12 months. They obviously know what's best. Yeah, yeah. But that's uh, – Yeah. 
I mean, I well, first let me say this before we move on. I, I have to say, anytime we have people like, like you that have been doing this for so long, sort of paved the road for us, so to speak. I have to say thanks because, you know, all the the work. I mean, we talk about work now, but we don't have work. We do, I mean, we got this. We don't have work. I mean, let's be there's honest. There's an app for you know, that. Yeah. Yeah, there, there's apps. But and you know what? You know, a, a lot of us. Uh, Go ahead. I'm sorry. They don't have human hair in them. <laughs> Listen, I, I, I still am in touch with a lot of old old timers. Ernie Wagner, I mean, they're not all alive, believe me, but mm-hmm. I'm still in touch with some of them. And the thing we marvel at is how so many people with reptiles now have never even caught a snake in the wild. Yes. And all of us back then started by collecting snakes. Um, yes. And we would make meccas to go to to Okatee, to go catch Okatee red rats in Santee, South Carolina. We'd go down to to Big ben, Big Bend National Park in Texas and, and collect Sabacularis. Sure. Uh, you know, go to California and hunt for mountain king snakes. We we would passionately do all these things, and everything that I've told you about may sound like a lot of work and hardships, but what a labor of love. I mean, what, what an adventure, what excitement it was to, to be mm-hmm. that excited about these animals and, and be chasing them all over the world. Literally in my case, uh, it, it just, you know, I wouldn't trade it for the world. It's, I just, I think it's almost hollow to, to come into it the way you, a person can now and just, click it up on Google and learn everything they need to know and buy cages that are all set up and humidifiers. And uh, I, I think we had a lot of fun doing what we did. It was, a, it was an adventure. So, and, and the, the old timers, I still know that uh, we all agree. We had a great time. Yeah. And it's, you know, that's why I love, I, I, I just, it's so much easier when we do it in this, in a podcast sort of format, because people can listen to, and sometimes they don't really get those things when people post on Facebook or whatever. But, you know, um, I would imagine that it it's for me, sometimes it's part of the fun is figuring out the puzzle, you know, and like, yeah, go into their environment and be, you know, and, and trying to, mm-hmm. you know, I think, I think for us where the generation now, I think it's up to us to sort of push it forward even more. It seems like, especially with snake keeping, we've just become complacent, I think, and not trying to, you know, utilize push those it new forward. tools to push further, right? Yeah, correct. We have, yeah. Okay, if those things are easier, then do more. Don't just say, oh, okay, well, we just have to meet the same threshold, right, and, and not do anything more. But if they're getting the results they want, which is a marketable offspring yeah. to sell, where's the motivation to do that? It's true, but I guess if the people, the same, this again, the same people that would yell at you or me or Rob for having a snake in a fish tank, would be the same people that you know say they love the animal but are not pushing it forward for the They're better not pushing, health of the animal. Getting, sure, getting that result. Yeah, not yeah. not saying how can I that enrichment. I know Eric was talking about that last week. Just anything, yeah. you know. Just, right. The the, th- the floor has been raised, but we're not pushing, you know, the ceiling. Well, yeah. I I just wish herpers would go snake hunting. I go to the pine <laughs> and the pine snake. You know, I mean seriously, yeah. go to Kansas, yeah. to catch a bull snake. Just and and I know some people do, but nothing like what it was. 
and, and the the fascination of of all these different places you can go and the snakes you can catch. I mean, you live in the Northeast, go catch a timber rattlesnake. Uh, you know, uh, I've collected snakes all over this country, and mm-hmm. it, wow, what you know. No bigger thrill, fascinating, man. No, fascinating experiences. That you never forget, you know. Yeah. yeah. No bigger thrill. I mean, I I love, you know, my biggest thrill is that big what, you know, ten foot scrubby that we found, you know, that was trying to get me mm-hmm. to run it over, and then I had to run down the road and get it. So uh, the guy coming behind us didn't run it over. I'm running in the middle of the road, you know, down in outside Cairns. But uh, that was all. Awesome. You know, did at you, the same time. Did you grab it? Did you oh, grab yeah. it? Oh yeah. I did. And it, uh, you know what? It it took one shot. You know, it got me on the leg just, you know, saying, because I just grabbed it. I was like, you're getting off the road. I don't care what happens. And it grabbed my yeah. leg. And then uh, after that, it was fine. You know, it gave me the look, you know, the same look that we got out of a five and a half, six footer that was like, eh, I'll think about it. But you, you know that I'm thinking about it. So I won't. That's, you know, <laughs> that look that they have. Um, yeah, I do. But after that, I put it around my neck, you know, got, you know, all, all that gr- that great shot. That, uh, and then you see in my face, it, it backs up in an S curve, and you can see me looking at it, saying, "I might have made a mistake." As you're now, you know, <laughs> I'm going to walk through the airport with, "Hey, mate, what happened to your face?" <laughs> you know, sort of thing going on. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. It, I mean, you obviously relate well to what I'm talking about here. Those are incredible experiences. I, I just can't imagine someone, you know, so many guys jumped on the ball python bandwagon to to make money, and that's, that sort of has gone the wayside now, but um, they just didn't really even know anything about reptiles or snakes, and I, I just, right. you know, I, I wish I could say you can't keep one until you go out and where do you live? New Jersey? Okay, go catch a king snake. Then we'll let you get one. Uh, just, just, to, just to get a slight sense of what what this is about, and and right. I'm not trying to be aloof. I hope um, I I just know it's such an enriching uh, development that we had back then by by collecting. Um, oh gosh, it was awful, awful. It was awesome. Yeah, trouble with my that's awesome. Here. <laughs> well, I'd love to hear. I know you'd hit on it earlier. I'd love to hear about. You know, herping in the Amazon. You know, whether it's emeralds, anacondas, ideally both, and just take it where it leads. I, I'd love to hear about you know where you went and what you saw. Any any sort of you know, Eric and I both travel quite a bit and know you know <laughs> know that it's not always smooth. So anything and everything is awesome. Well, that would take a long time. I mean, I've I've, <laughs> I've, I've been to uh, well both the Guyanas to Suriname, to Venezuela, to Colombia, to Brazil, Peru. I think that's all the countries I've been to, and I've collected in all those <laughs> countries, from Matamata turtles awesome. to, to uh, and I've caught boa constrictors, I've caught them in Colombia, I've caught them in Peru, um, and, and emeralds in Peru and Brazil and, and uh, Suriname and Guyana. And... <laughs> It's just uh, here. Here I hear it, they're hard to find, and you're just saying, "Oh well, I just find them everywhere I go." Oh no, they're hard to find. They're hard to find. But you—you <laughs> uh, you know, it's—it's it's interesting. Just just a little sidebar. Uh, collecting emeralds, you, you think of them as an animal that just—or I don't think of them, but but you know, that up in a treetop and catching speaking, birds. Sure. Well, 
really, where you catch them is you get in, in these wonderful wooden dugout canoes with some native that you pay 50 bucks a day to, and you go out at night with big, powerful lights, and you you get off the Amazon, you go up tributaries, and then you go up the tributaries of those into these little streams where the, the vegetation is so dense that, that it's hitting you in the head as you go through because it's hanging over. And along the edges of these streams will be what look like mango roots, mang- mangrove roots, okay. that, that go up six, eight, ten feet in the air because these things are all struggling to get up above the canopy to get sure. sunlight. Right. Yeah, to get, all to get, a, get a reach down there. of sunlight. Yeah, and, and there will be an emerald just cruising along, and they're finding rat trails because what you'll see more than snakes will be rats running <laughs> along these these uh, roots. And they, they, I think they have established trails, so the emeralds uh, and, and the cook's tree bows, garden tree, whatever you want to call them, they right. will just be sitting right over a trail like, okay, guys, this is your freeway, <laughs> I, and I'm the toll collector. Sure. So, I mean, right. it's, it's just, when you when you learn that, uh, you, you'll realize an emerald just doesn't have to do a whole lot of moving in its life. They can sit on one of these hot spots, and there's a lot of rodent traffic down there. And it's, it's absolutely fascinating. Anacondas. Um, I've I've never you know down in that that big uh, open vast prairie swamp in Venezuela where all that research is done is there's no trees or anything right. where I've where I've caught anacondas have been in river systems and again these roots I'm just describing are are along some of the bigger rivers too not the Amazon itself but some of the tributaries and mm-hmm. and the anacondas will just get up there and sun themselves during the day. And if you think you're going to come up and grab that thing, you're out of your mind. <laughs> they are so fast. When they realize you're coming, they just, poof, they're in the water and gone. Um, Might as well be a monitor for how fast oh, it's gone. Wow. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I've chased monitors in Africa. Oh, my God. And I was physically fit back. I was young. I still couldn't catch up with them. I, I don't know how the natives <laughs> catch them to sell them. I think oh, they gosh. trap them, actually. But, right. but uh yeah, the anaconda can move with incredible speed off the, and they're just up there sunning themselves. Uh, I, I once was down there with a friend. We were looking for emeralds, and we were out fishing, catching piranha in this little oxbow lake off of one of the streams. And uh, there's some bird, shorebird, wading around about 100 yards from us, and all of a sudden, wham, down it went. <laughs> we paddled over there, and there's this anaconda eating it. So I I just reached in, grabbed the anaconda, and flipped it up in our boat. It, it wasn't very big, like six feet or something. And uh, I was so heartbroken because it puked the bird up. <laughs> ah, but yeah. that was an e- that was an easy catch. But you wouldn't have known there was an anaconda out in this this pond just cruising around. It's fascinating, oh, wow. fascinating stuff. But you know, the reptile most of the reptile That's... collecting is done at night there. Right. Yeah, that's totally awesome. It, it's super interesting, too, that the Corallus is matching up with, I mean, that's the same thing that we hear about condor python, you know, whether it's Australia or in uh, Papua New Guinea, is that they're, you know, as you say, conceived of as they have these massive teeth and that they're eating birds and these sorts of things. But in reality, you're finding them, you know, 
at least in the case of chondros, eight inches off the ground, ready for, you know, along one of these trails that you're talking about, waiting for something to yeah. walk by. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I have crawled up in more than one tree to get as far up in the canopy as I can, and which is not easy. Those trees are not friendly to people climbing. <laughs> and, um, I have never seen an emerald up, up at the top. And I remember one time in particular, uh, we were told these these natives had seen an emerald come out every night on this one tree in, near their their village. So I uh. climbed that tree, and <laughs> I went. There was no emerald in that tree. I was being lied to. Uh, I guarantee. <laughs> they I, just wanted I, to see I, you go up the tree. <laughs> I. They probably were having the time of their life laughing at me. But, oh, but I. I I mean, it was a fairly big tree, but I went on every single limb of that tree. I did not miss a thing. And, and some of those trees have thorns like a rose bush yeah. does. They stick oh, out almost an inch, and they're all over the place. So it, oh, it's wow. a very difficult thing to do. But I was determined wow. to get that emerald. But once I was done, I was God. obviously disgusted with them. I said, there's no emerald in this tree. You're lying to me. <laughs> but, Anyway, I've never seen one, not that I spend that much time on the top of the canopy, but I've never seen one up there, and I don't know why they would go up there anywhere. The food is plentiful down where I'm describing. Right, it's much easier to get down low, sure. Yeah, yeah, and birds aren't easy to catch, and besides, feathers. Uh... Yeah, it's a mess. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. Huh. Okay, well, that that makes so, a ton of sense. Okay. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's just, you know, it's, it's so fascinating down there. Um, but there's not a reptile under every bush, like, or in every bush, or all that stuff. I mean, there's few and far between. I've always wanted to find a bushmaster down there, and never, ever did. Um, well, those do some I, weird things, right? In terms of going underground, those, those, it's sort of like a. The Gila monster, it seems like, where you got to hit that season just right and you can see him or, or whatever, but it's probably kind of similar. Yeah, I don't know. I, I never had it figured out for sure. But I, it's not like I concentrated on it. I just was always hoping I would find one, a beautiful animal. But That'd be a heck of a handful, too. <laughs> no oh, yeah. That. Yeah, for sure. And, of course, caiman is fun grabbing caiman at night. <laughs> <laughs> Sure. <laughs> yeah, you know, they're, they're quick, but they'll they'll sit there with the light and just hold still, and you can get pretty close, and then just, if it's not over three feet, you grab it. If it's bigger than that, you're crazy. Just go for it. <laughs> right. Yeah. All right, we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll take note of that for uh, for Fog Dam. Okay. Eric, uh, yeah. I'll send you in after the band, those that are bigger than three foot. <laughs> well, if you go back uh... to... to uh, to uh, Australia, you could uh, just go try to catch a saltwater croc. That would be fun. Well, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, we got yeah. we're going to go to Fog Dam in the fall, and it's like oh, well, is that what you're talking I guess, about? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I'll just have Eric grab anything that looks bigger than than what you're talking about. I'll say, Eric, you can catch this one. Don't worry about it. Well, I'm told they really enjoy human flesh, so be careful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh boy. I, I once I was in Zimbabwe once and I was trying to get as close as I could to a big croc there, and I estimated this thing at 16 feet long, and I snuck. Is, oh my god! I, I, I was on the uh, Sabe River, at the border of Mozambique and Zimbabwe, and 
I saw this huge croc, and I just wanted to get as close as possible and get some photographs. And on the way over there, I, I bumped a monitor, and I, I went after it, and I thought, oh, that was probably a mistake. And just and I was probably 100 yards from the croc at the time, and on the same side of the river as he was. He was on a sandbar. And so I peeked up, and sure as hell, the croc was gone. And I think it actually felt the vibration of my footsteps when I ran off after the monitor. That's crazy. Yeah, I, I can't think of any other reason it would have gotten the river because they'll just lay there forever, you know. And uh, yeah. it's, w- once again, I'm you know I'm in absolute awe of some of the skill sets these animals have. You know, I can feel the vibration. I and I could be totally wrong, but I had myself convinced that what is that's what it was anyway. I was very mad at myself for that. Makes some sense, I, sure. Yeah, I didn't catch the monitor either. It's, <laughs> There was no picture, no monitor, wet feet. Wow. <laughs> so, okay, that, well. On that trip, you want to hear a good yeah. snake story on that trip? Yeah. Uh, I was walking with a, a couple natives, and I don't remember what we were doing, but anyway, we walked a, across the savanna, and then we cut through um, about a 20-foot-wide dry creek bed that was just full of leaves. And so we're walking through the leaves, and I was in the lead. And all of a sudden, I just flipped myself backwards. And they said, what are you doing? I said, there's a puff hatter right there. And we stood there, these two natives, and they looked and said, where? We don't see it. And they could not see it. And all I could see was maybe three inches of its body, but I saw the pattern, which I Mm -hmm. I raised Uh, puff hatter. And my my reptile brain... saw that pattern and just, you know, I knew exactly what I saw and I flipped myself backwards because we were 10 hours from a hospital. If I stepped on that thing, that'd be a <laughs> goodbye, you know. So so my reaction was, was intense. But anyway, they they just didn't believe me. And finally I got a stick and I, you know, a good size stick and I poked it and it moved and I got it under it and pulled it out. And they were like, how did you see that? And I didn't tell them, you know, that I had raised them before, but. God, right. that was that was awesome. That that could things like that. You know, you're really living on the edge when you're walking around with these puff adders in, the, in their leaves. But whatever. <laughs> <laughs> wow, puff adders are beautiful, though. Oh man, I love the pattern and color on those things. Whew. Yeah, this one uh, in this particular area, they they had um, they're real blackish with sort of a orangish tint to down their sides because wow. they're hmm, okay. just sort of fawn colored and you know black and white right and maybe pinks and stuff they were back, absolutely yeah. beautiful here i just I, I i saw one dead on the road in that one but uh god they're that was a beautiful snake that's awesome i wish i could have another lifetime to live though because there's so many things i haven't done i've never caught a gaboon viper or a rhino viper and well, the list goes on and on, but <laughs> yeah, I mean that's is crazy because there... you start getting into blues and yellows and greens, all sorts of crazy. You know, those those are mm-hmm. nuts. Yeah, reptiles are just as colorful as as birds or or as um, uh, say saltwater tropical fish. You know, I mean, there's some incredible colors and shades out and hues out there. It's fascinating. 
I've I've never been able to understand uh, evolution saying that uh, you know a rhino viper developed this pattern and this color for camouflage. I just don't get it. Um, I, you know, I, I suppose over millions of years, the ones with that that were starting to develop that color survived right. more, so they got to breed more and all that. I guess that's how it works. Right. But when you look at some of the ornate uh, decoration on, on animals, not just reptiles, it just blows my mind. I don't get it. I, I do not get it. I, I believe yeah. in it, but I don't get it at all. <laughs> right. <laughs> I guess it's just one of those things. Uh, yeah, I don't try to figure out. I just accept it, you know, because my brain, my monkey brain, can't <laughs> can't wrap my head around it. You know? Oh, I I know. Listen, when I'm out west, and you know what it's like out west when you can see so many more stars than you can back east. Totally. You you look out there and you realize every star is a sun, and there could be planets going around it. And I just go, all right, whatever. I give up. I can't figure it out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, Eric and I had the same conversation where he was, whether it was Planet Earth, you know, the the show or whatever it was. It was like he was talking about something, and it's just the answer is it's too complex for us to understand, so we ignore it. Like that's kind of the human condition is to, you know, <laughs> ignore complexity that just blows our mind. Yeah. Um, well, but when you're out west, you can attest to this. It, it, you know. And you look in the night sky if you're if you're not in downtown Denver oh, yeah. or something you're out. Sure. And you look at the skies and of course I've been I've been to Alaska all over Canada I've been very far north and uh, you know I've seen the aurora borealis but you know when you get up there where there's no light from civilization whatsoever and you just look out there you feel like such a speck in the universe a speck of dust. Oh, and then yeah. you look at this planet with all these life forms and, you know, these beautiful birds and all reptiles and fish mm-hmm. and mammals. And, yeah. Wow, what an incredible uh, ride it is to be here and be part of this. For sure. I know we had that feeling in far north Queensland when it was just like, we were, I don't remember where we were at, but we just looked up and it was, yeah, I mean, it's it not even, you know, south um, yeah. southeast Utah doesn't even compare, you know, where you just go, wow, this is. There's, we're such a tiny speck, but with all this yeah. stuff, what does that mean for the rest of it? Right. Yeah, I don't know what it means. It's just incredible. I'm so glad to be here. You know. Heck yeah, <laughs> right? man. So, um, I get. Well, to before we close out, um, I, I just. You know, first, I want to thank you for coming on the show. But um, uh, the the one. We always end with questions, uh, more or less saying, if you could uh, herp anywhere in the world, where would it be, and what would you hope to find? Anywhere in the world, without limitations. No, pr- don't worry about price. It's, it's on us. <laughs> price, terrorists, anything. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I've already done it. I mean, Amazon Basin Emeralds are my biggest passion in reptiles I've ever had, and I've done that. Okay. Uh, but second. Uh, would be Australia. Okay. Uh, right. I'd like to catch a blackhead, a woma, a parente. <laughs> the list goes on and on. You know, I'd like right. to catch uh, uh, Oh boy, what a fascinating place! I I really wouldn't mind avoiding their their venomous reptiles. Uh, <laughs> and I am absolutely fascinated with with rattlesnakes, all the rattlesnakes, especially the willer die. 
Um, right. Yeah, I'm with you. Oh man, yeah. I'm with you. What what a piece of evolution to have a folding hypodermic fang with a heat sensory pit in your face and a warning system rattles and God Almighty, what an incredible animal! Right. So dri- oh. so driven to speciation. It's, cra- it's yep. crazy. Yeah. But I've caught them all over the place. So Australia, I guess, would be if I, you know, <laughs> I really do intend to go to Australia. I want to ship my motorcycle over and just roam around for a month or two. That's the way to do it. Um, yeah. Well, well we're going to start I, going we, twice a year, Eric. So it's fine. <laughs> Maybe one of these times we just need to catch up and go together. Right. Um, Good idea. Is there uh, uh, are you are you keeping anything currently? We didn't even ask you that. I mean, or are you? Um, have I've, you... I've got a small colony of hill monsters. They're okay. Like fourth generation, I think, um, of my own breedings. Okay. And I love I love hill. I love their personality and love them. Yes, I've got I've got this one which I can't talk about, but totally unique ball python which could be uh, earth shattering if it proves out. And I've got her her first litter uh, growing now nicely, so we'll see. But other okay. than that, no, I really really don't. I got some nice black and white banded California kings which I'm, I want to nice. let go. I don't know if it's legal, but I just want to. I've got three generations of them, and I don't want to sell them. I just want to let them go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I guess they're yeah, in the wild, I've, I've right? Enjoy, yeah, I've, I've enjoyed them so much, and they're just right. fun. And, and and I've done it long enough. Like, oh no, I don't want another litter this year. So, right. But, uh, oh my I don't gosh. Know what I'm okay. Right, so cool. no, I'm not keeping much anymore. But I'm, I've reached an age where I I want to uh, be. Uh, you know, I I have been raising reptiles since I was a little boy, and, and they, right. they've been, been down. I traveled a lot, but I want to travel a lot more right now um, Right. as I get older. It's like uh, full circle, you know? We start out catching reptiles, and, you know, as you get older... And, <laughs> yeah, and, you, you know, progress you, through it, and then you say, I just want to see reptiles in the wild. Yeah, you, you know, yeah. I mean... But I love traveling, and I love traveling on a motorcycle, and that's why uh, Australia is a really attractive thought to me. I'd also like to do um, the length of, of um, South America on a motorcycle and just collect things all the way down to Argentina. Wow. That would be cool, too. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah. trip. Yeah. <laughs> wow. You got, you got, a, going you got some pretty Mexico awesome bucket list America. stuff, man. <laughs> yeah. I know. I don't, I'm not sure I have enough time, but I'm going to go for it. Oh, man. Awesome. Wow. That's awesome. Well, it's uh, again. Thank you so much for taking the time out and coming on and sharing your stories with us, and you know, talking to us about your experiences with diamond pythons. It's it's really been awesome. Uh, appreciate it very okay. very much. Thank you. I I, I really enjoyed talking to you guys. You're both, you're great, and it's really nice to talk to guys with the enthusiasm you have. So, uh, thanks for having me on. I I enjoyed it immensely. Thanks, man. You have a good thanks night. Thanks very much. Okay, you too. Good night. Good night. Love it, man. Love it. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah, yeah. That's really, really cool. Um, I hope, you know, my hope is with these kind of episodes is that not only are the stories awesome, I mean, the stories are really cool. You know, you hear these stories of back in the day. I guess maybe it's a little nostalgic for me because it kind of reminds me of my dad and growing up and 
seeing all the all the things that he's talking about and kind of like living through it, you know. Um, sure. But uh, I I just hope well, that me too, young, man. Young, you know. Yeah, I just hope that younger you herpers uh, appreciate, you know, everything that was done to get us to where we're at. You know what I mean? So. Oh, totally. I mean, and maybe uh, for for me, you know, my. <laughs> My dad, more like Owens than yours, you know, in terms of appreciation and the stuff. But um, just being reared on, I mean, heck, whether, as I said, you know, my first exposure to Stan was my very first Reptiles magazine. You know, so kind of reared on the old school, even though that wasn't necessarily me, you know, or even my uh, folks that I could get into close contact with. But at the same time, those were the people who had the first websites. You know, it's where's Terry mm-hmm. Dunham nowadays? You know, the dude who bred the uh, albino Hondurans after Brian, you know, and made it a whole big thing, you know, expanded mm-hmm. that, that whole thing. And that's even a more project. But, you know, that that sort of stuff, it, uh, to the same point that you're talking about, it, it's selfish on my part, but it's also just, uh, I think it's important, you know. I feel like I appreciate reptiles more because of my exposure to people who had to work that much harder than we do. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what you're saying is you're glad that Owen was on suspension tonight (laughs) for this episode. Uh, What I'm saying is I think I was the right person for this show. (laughs) Regardless. (laughs) Right, right, right. Very good. There there, are most shows. That's not the case, but this one I'm, I'm glad for it and uh, glad to uh, help out whether it was, a date that Jim uh, either knows about or doesn't know about and uh, needs to advise him on or doesn't need to advise him on. Um, Correct. You know, whatever the case, uh, had to come on to celebrate your birthday today. Happy birthday. Sure. I don't think I said it earlier. Thanks, man. Yeah, um, thank you. And, uh, I'm you know, turning to into celebrate one of those that old school guys. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's pretty weird when you're, you know, I'm, what, 45 now? You say, you, you start to... Uh, Stop counting when you get well, to you a start to for, Yeah, you start to forget. Yeah. I mean, the same yeah. thing's already happening to me. I'm not that much older than Owen. And, you know, the uh, the funny bit, and I don't know if we talked about this on the show, was at Carpet Fest last year, when one of your sisters thought that I was you. And she was like, oh, wow, man, Eric looks about 10 years younger. Oh, okay, well, that would have been, that'd be about right. Right. You know, your own yeah. sister thought that I was right. you. Uh, and wow. then I got the, the first height, haircut man. and <laughs> it, well, that, sure, there aren't that many hobbits around. And then uh, I got my haircut for the first time in 15 months, and I said, "Oh, do this, do this, you know, this sort of thing." I, I guess it's I hate the process. And uh, next thing I know, I wound up with getting the Eric Burke haircut, and I'm just oh, like, "Okay, well, I, I guess this is what I have now." <laughs> yeah. It's official At least now, for man. Six, you know, six weeks, man. Right. Right. I don't know. Maybe it'll have grown out enough that uh, that we won't By run Carpet a repeat of last year. Yeah. <laughs> no, nah, man. You gotta you gotta come in with that haircut. You know, it's unacceptable any other way. You know, really start tripping them out. You know, if only there. Well, I guess Owen could be could be the tall person, and he's picking us up by our heads and like swapping us back and forth after <laughs> a cup game to figure out who's who. Yeah. There you go. Very cool. Um, but yeah, yeah. That was that was uh, that was good fun. Yeah for that show for sure um yeah we got to get uh there's a couple more on the people on that list that we have oh, to yeah. check off there's some more people on the list and and maybe i what i need to do is talk to stan 
off air and you know get some uh, contact info and stuff because I he mentioned a couple people that I'd already thought about. So yeah, amen, amen. So that's the way to go. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I guess. Uh, I don't, uh, did you have anything else you wanted to hit on? Any uh, you, you feel you you got a rant in you or something or what? What what do you? Think? <laughs> I'm open to a rant from you. I, I'm I'm game man, a but rant. I, I don't really have anything. You know, yeah. I, I think I don't know uh, if I can really rant on my birthday, but uh, you know, right? A birth- yeah, <laughs> well, presumably avoided Facebook, save for the congratulations and whatever. But I. Yeah, I don't know, man. I'm I'm happy. I'm really happy about the show. I think Stan was totally awesome, as you know, as good as I could have hoped for, and that's saying a lot after two years of waiting for the show to happen. Yeah, yeah. This was a long. I, I, it was just by a fluke um, that I saw yeah, him. You mentioned uh, it. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy, man. Just a fluke. I was over on the Diamond Python group page, and uh, I saw somebody asked about care, and he posted up that he wrote an article way back, and I was like, oh, man, i got to message this guy. i got to get him on. So uh, so awesome stuff for sure. The, the next uh, big big tackle will be Dave Barker. That will be the, uh, <laughs> the big one. I don't, I don't know if that will ever happen, but you never know. We'll see. Yeah, I never mean, say never. you know, I've certainly exchanged a few hundred emails over time. I don't think I've ever asked him about this. I know other people better than me have have done so, but well, we'll we've see. always I'll, went the Tracy route. see what route. I can do, man. Yeah, we always went the ah, Tracy see. route. Yeah, okay. But well, I'm thinking I'll, I'll see we what gotta I can go do, to man. Dave route. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. If you make that I'll happen, see. I'll see. I'll buy you a drink at Carpenter Fest. It... <laughs> oh Lord. <laughs> Oh Lord, I got to do that to get a to get a drink on you. Yeah. Okay. Oh man, I think maybe that's a case, man. We, we next time we go to the lick, you can say, okay, the, you know, I got the whole case on you, man. On yeah, absolutely, hundred percent. Right. We'll yeah, yeah. So, uh, all right, cool. Um, I, uh, I don't think uh, so. Next week we still have open. I I, I sort of have a, a guest lined up, and then. Uh, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. Uh, I know that, um, Bill is going to be coming on, uh, at the beginning of April. Um, now that he's a retired guy, he's, uh, living the dream. He's just you know? hitting all the podcasts and, yeah, well, man. and I, I heard him talking to Justin and he was just complaining that, you know, you, you could tell he, he wasn't, uh, it wasn't overt, but you could tell that he, he feels like he's been left out. So get some, uh, you know, whether oh, I'm on no. or not, you know, we can talk to him again. Yeah. <laughs> no, nothing but love, Bill. Nothing but love. And he's probably breeding rough scales this year. And, you know, that will be fun to he throw in He said the male wasn't face. going for it, I think. I don't, oh, I don't no? remember. I think that's what he said. Which is a shame because if he produces things before OMAC, oh, my God. <laughs> Life oh, is over. The best. The best. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 100%. So um, yeah, so stay tuned for uh, for that, and uh, we'll, when we get it squared away. But uh, as far as us, MurrayPythonRadio dot com, you can follow us on uh, all the various social media uh, outlets. Um, and then for myself is uh, Morelia, dot com dot net. Either one, take you there, um, and then you can find me all over the place. As far as that goes, and Owen, who is. Uh, <laughs> Not here tonight, rogue-reptiles.com, and you can uh, find all his stuff, and uh, go ahead, Uh, Rob, what do you got? 
uh, High Plains Herp at, on Instagram. I suppose that's it. Otherwise, you can find me, chat me up. I'm always eager to talk reptiles, and you know, that's about it. Have a great night. Okay, awesome, very good. Uh, what does Owen always say at the end? Damn it! <laughs> I always forget what he says. Oh shit! He said it to me oh, for the God. past goddamn seven years, or eight, whatever it is. Uh, whatever. Anyway, at least yeah. we can start the show good. Ending the show, not so. But uh, this is this is where you play fade to black after I added it, but then it it was gone. It wasn't on there. So I lost. This is where you just hit that button. Right. Very good. All right. Till next week. Thank you for listening to Morelia Python Radio. Good night.